Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Particularly exciting that uh, in this uh, in this spring we're seeing not quite spring yet. It is today, isn't it? Yesterday, I'm behind. Glory to God. Well, whenever it is, we're seeing people come out of their hobbit holes and trickle back into church, and that's that's been a really exciting thing. And another really exciting thing is that our church actually has grown uh, during COVID. We've actually gained about 10 new families uh, here at LifePoint, so that's very exciting uh, to see happen. Well, we're in a series titled Fear, Faith, and the Future, and... Um, Today uh, is message number four in that series, and in this series, we've been seeking to answer the question, what must we do as followers of Jesus Christ in the world today, both individually and as a believing community, to persevere in our faith and obedience to Christ in the face of increasing opposition and potential persecution? Uh, Not a light question by any means. And this morning, I'd like to offer uh, some insights about the critical role of the family in cultivating that essential perseverance in the lives of each of its members. I hope that you'll take notes this morning. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot here, and so I hope that you will um, make notations. We might just pause uh, and ask the question, what is a family? And... Uh, What I think you'll realize very quickly as you begin to ponder that is that it's not an easy question to answer in today's world. But I had to laugh at the person who said that families are like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. And and the one who confessed that in our family, if you're normal, you, you must have been adopted. And another who allowed that our family is temperamental, half temper, half mental. And then finally, one more who quipped, I smile because you're my family. I laugh because there's nothing that you can do about it. (laughs) On a more serious note, pastor and author Chuck Swindoll described the family as that unique place where character is developed and patterns for life are determined. And then he added, try all you like. You simply cannot find a substitute for the family. God planned it that way in spite of all we're reading and seeing these days designed to make us think we've entered the family phase-out era. Don't you believe it? There is nothing on earth that comes close to the benefits derived from relationships revolving around our roots. Nothing. And then in her great volume, which uh, it's an older book, I commend it to your reading if you've not read it, Uh, What is a family? The late Edith Schaefer very thoughtfully described the family as the birthplace of creativity, a formation center for human relationships, a shelter in the time of storm, a perpetual relay of truth, an economic unit, a door that has hinges and a lock, an educational control, and a museum of memories." on-target descriptions, provocative descriptions. And uh, again, if if you find it provocative, I would encourage you to read the book, What is a Family? 
More recently, Rod Dreher offered this definition in his book, Live Not by Lies. He said, the family is where we first learn to love others. And if we're lucky, it's also where we first learn to live in truth. I don't think it will come as any surprise to you for me to say that traditional understandings of marriage and the family are under assault and being deconstructed in America today. Uh, In the past, the Christian family in America could depend in part on the outside world to support its mission. And in turn, strong families produced citizens capable of building strong civil societies. Uh, I actually grew up at a time when there were no school activities on Wednesday nights because they knew that that was the night the kids went to church. And uh, there was a lot of cooperation between church and school. But that's no longer the assault on marriage and family that began with the sexual revolution of the 1950s and 1960s has taken an immeasurable toll. The historical understanding of the of the family as a heterosexual male and a heterosexual female in a lifelong exclusive marriage raising 2.5 children uh, may still be the majority but it has been joined by a variety of another of other ways of understanding the family. Dynamics such as the prevalence of divorce and remarriage, cohabitation, single parent families, children being raised by grandparents, children otherwise being raised by non-biological parents have dramatically altered the family landscape in America. Add to that the expanding number of families in which the parent or parents, whether married or unmarried, identify as homosexual, bisexual, or transgender. And what we're left with is a bewildering array of family structures and family dynamics. Last week, I shared with you a conversation that Rod Dreher recounts in his book, The Benedict Option, about sitting at dinner with a a group of professors at an evangelical college in the Midwest and hearing the professors talk about the biblical and theological illiteracy of Christian freshmen. And this past week, I I came across another... um, conversation online between Rod Dreher and an interviewer uh, in which he shared another part of that same conversation. The author asked the professors what else they were seeing among the students on their campus. And one of the professors answered, my greatest worry for them is that none of them will be able to form stable families. Uh, Rod Dreher, the author, was astonished and asked, but this is a conservative evangelical college. How is this possible? The professor looked at him with tears in his eyes and said, because most of these kids have never seen a stable family. The culture has so degraded the culture of family that it doesn't even make sense to them. And I think that if we're going to have any hope at all of preserving Christianity or even a memory of Christianity, It has to begin by rebuilding the family. And that begins by making choices ourselves and reinforcing those choices and helping young people to value marriage and having children. Again, the stakes are high, aren't they? Families can no longer look to society or the state 
for support of Christian faith and values. Again, that's not news to you. We've, we've crossed the Rubicon on this one, and there's probably no going back. On topics such as abortion, parental rights, education, sexual orientation, gender identity, transgenderism, more recently girls' sports, freedom of conscience, and more, there are elements within our government that have and are attempting to progressively and systematically purge our legal system of traditional sport, uh, supports not only for Christian faith and values, but also for traditional marriage. I want to highlight for you a current very urgent example that, that I highly encourage you to investigate. It's U.S. House Bill 5, the so-called Equality Act, which takes the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which outlawed state-sanctioned discrimination uh, against black Americans that, that resulted in systematic economic and material harm to them. And then it expands upon it and actually weaponizes it by forcing every American to agree with controversial and unbiblical government-imposed ideology on sexuality or to be treated as an outlaw. In a misguided effort to um, protect the rights of some It violates the civil rights and constitutional freedoms of many. And if you read the the body of the text of the bill, you'll realize that it it stands as an affront to people of faith uh, across a broad spectrum. Catholics, mainstream Christians, evangelicals, Mormons, Jews, Muslims. And, And I might add that it is a bill that civil rights icon Martin Luther King Jr. would never, ever have endorsed. And I obviously don't have time to go into detail here because its provisions are extensive, but but please, uh, if you have the time, if you're willing, go online, read the actual bill. It's downloadable. Um, there's There's a link. If you just type in the Equality Act or U.S. House Bill 5, um, you'll find it. And then uh, the second link is to an excellent analysis provided by the Heritage Foundation, And I hope that you'll write down that link. And then I hope that you'll call or write your senators, Patty Murray, Maria Cantwell, and as many others as you can, and urge them to oppose this bill uh, when it comes to a vote in the Senate. Under totalitarianism, Christian families have always become cells of resistance, and that's kind of the focus of today, the family becoming a cell of resistance Let's be reminded of what totalitarian is. Can't even say it. What totalitarianism is? It's a form of government that that theoretically permits no individual freedom and seeks to subordinate all aspects of the of the individual life to the authority of the state. Even going so far as to define what is true and to control even the thoughts of its subjects, hence total totalitarianism, total control. When we today think of totalitarianism, we're probably going to think of 20th century dictators uh, such as Benito Mussolini in Italy, uh, Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, uh, 
Mao Zedong in communist China, uh, the Kim dynasty in North Korea. And we may look around and tell ourselves that, that nothing so extreme could ever take place in the United States. But so did people in those countries feel the same way. Nothing like that could ever happen in their country. And as I shared with you in the very first message in this series, survivors of Soviet and Chinese communism now living in the free world are able, because of what they have experienced, to read the signs. And they're sounding the alarms. They're, they're, they're seeing something coming in America. And they're trying to warn us that in the United States today and in the Western world generally, we are living under what they see as pre-totalitarian conditions. And unless something radical happens to interrupt that downward spiral, full totalitarianism may be just around the corner. And having grown up very patriotic in America, I, it sounds crazy to me too. And I think as a child, I would, I would never have thought that, that anything like even what we're experiencing now could take place in the United States of America. Some have referred to the, the coming conditions in the United States as soft totalitarianism, a kind of national ideological groupthink, not initially imposed at the end of a gun by a police state, but rather through media and big tech, through education and legislation, so that one fine day we might very well wake up to the reality that we're living in an entirely different kind of country stripped of rights and freedoms we once held dear, that, that we once took for granted and, and rather headed toward a harder governmentally enforced totalitarianism. And if there's any good news to be found in all of this, I think it's that Christianity was born and flourished under an oppressive regime. And down through the centuries, the church has actually survived the rule of dictators, fascists, even totalitarianism, as God preserved a righteous remnant. It's it's amazing to think that in communist China, the church has exploded uh, and um, is is very, very strong. Of course, it's an underground church, but it's enormous. An essential element of that, a necessary resource to that survival, has been an active commitment to the family in every case. Theologian Albert Moeller said that God, as part of the order of creation, has designed the family to be a resistance cell, that the capacity for being a resistance cell was woven into the very nature of the family to such a degree that once families ceased to fulfill that vital role, no resistance, he says, to the secularizing influence of the world will be left. It's that important. Rod Dreher, in his book, Live Not by Lies, asserts that Christians will have to regard family life in a much more focused, serious way. The traditional Christian family is not merely a good idea. It's also a survival strategy for the faith in a time of persecution. Christians should stop taking family life for granted and instead approach it in a more thoughtful, disciplined way. We cannot simply live as all other families live except that we go to church on Sunday. 
Holding the right theological beliefs and having the right intentions will not be enough. Christian parents must be intentionally countercultural in their approach to family dynamics. The days of living like everyone else and hoping our children turn out for the best are over. A Catholic school teacher in Budapest, Hungary, who grew up in communist Hungary, Maria Komaromi, said that it's no wonder that every dictatorship tries to break down the family because it's in the family that you get the strength to be able to fight. You have the feeling that they have your back so you can go out into the world and face anything, and it's just as true today as it was under communism. So in the remainder of our time this morning, I'd I'd like to suggest five functions of the Christian family that I think are at the core of what will be required of us to live faithfully as Christ followers in the days and the years ahead of us, and therefore to which we as parents and grandparents will need to give attention. And the first is this, that the Christian family as a resistance cell will provide a haven in a heartless world. It needs to be a place of refuge, a place where you can come home. There's a well-known and often cited quote by the American writer Robert Frost from his poem, The Death of the Hired Man. And it says that home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Thought-provoking line. And it speaks to belonging, doesn't it? To the, the, the intrinsic connectedness of the family. A man named Václav Benda was a believing Christian, an intellectual, a mathematician who lived under communist rule in Prague, Czechoslovakia. He also happened to be a senior member of an anti-communist dissident organization. And together with his wife Camilla, they raised six children, each of which is still faithful to Christ today as adults Václav Benda spent a great deal of time thinking about the role that the traditional family should take in building Christian resistance to the influences of communism. And he knew that together with the church, the family was just a thorn in the side of the communist totalitarian state, that it's more difficult to destroy, to prohibit, to completely infiltrate the biological family than any other more complex group. And he expressed some of his core thoughts in an essay titled The Family and the Totalitarian State, which you can download online. And within that essay, he identified three gifts that he thought Christian marriage and family offer that he, that he also understood as urgently needed by believers struggling under a totalitarian state. The first gift is what he called the fruitful fellowship of love, in which we're bound together with our neighbor without pardon by virtue simply of our closeness, not on the basis of merit, rights, and entitlements, but by virtue of mutual need and its affectionate reciprocations. Fruitful fellowship of love. The second is the gift of freedom. Gift of freedom uh, to make permanent eternal decisions, to be a free agent uh, under an oppressive environment. And the third gift is the value and the unique role of the individual within the family fellowship. That family confers on each member a sense of dignity, a sense of uniqueness and of intrinsic value. And he wrote, in virtually all other social roles, 
we are replaceable and rightly or wrongly may be stripped of these roles. Yet between couples, children, and parents, it is not cold calculating justice, but the law of love that prevails. And where love fails completely still, there remains the appeal of joint responsibility, which does not permit one to abandon undeserving children, unfaithful spouses, or aged parents. Well, there's a lot there, obviously, in his thoughts. But I hope that you heard in there things like love, acceptance, forgiveness, faithfulness, freedom to become the people God wants each of us to be, respect for the dignity and value of each family member, faithfulness to our marriages and families. And these are among the most important gifts that will cause our homes to be havens for each family member in an increasingly heartless world. Secondly, the Christian family as a resistance cell will understand itself as a center for spiritual formation. Whether we like it or not, and sometimes we don't like it, God has laid on parents, both fathers and mothers, the primary responsibility to lead their children to personal faith and then to provide for their spiritual nurture and formation. This was as true among God's people, the Jews, as it is for us as Christians today. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is known to the Jews as the Shema. And the word Shema means to hear, not just to hear with your ears in a sensory way, but to hear with your mind and your heart, to consider and take to heart what's being said. Beginning at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You may recall that Jesus called the command in verse Six, the greatest commandment of all. And I want to want you to very briefly see five imperatives that are contained here within these six verses. The first is that the commandment must be on our hearts as parents. You notice that? Before he says anything else about teaching children, he says these commandments shall be on your hearts. Speaking to the men of Israel in particular, the dads, the fathers. You see, it's, it's true that, that if we don't possess a faith that is living, that is personal, that exists not merely on the level of the intellect, but also on our hearts, we will possess neither the capacity nor the motivation to pass on to our children a living faith. It starts with you, Dad. It starts with you, Mom, and the reality and vitality of your own relationship with God. Second imperative here is that you should teach them diligently to your children. And you may not think of yourself as a teacher. Not everyone is gifted as a teacher. But the obligation God places on you as a parent supersedes what you consider to be your limitations. And not only are we to teach God's word to our children, we're to do so diligently, which suggests effort that goes beyond the commonplace. The third imperative there is to talk of them. 
Notice the times and locations of those conversations when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And what Moses is describing, I think, is a just an ongoing active conversation at every opportune moment regarding the Word of God, what it says, what it means, what it tells us about God, about ourselves, about reality, and how it should affect in practical terms our thinking, our feeling, and our doing. The fourth imperative is to bind them says on as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes it's a practice somewhat unique to Judaism but by doing that they were reminded constantly of who they were and a reminder to others that they were the people of God the fifth imperative here is to write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates for the Jews the home provides an abundance of reminders of both their identity as the people of God and of their obligation to love God above all. What you put on the walls of your home, parents, can have a huge influence. Uh, My parents in our home uh, didn't necessarily put Scripture on the wall, but they put sayings that were true. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, was one of those. I guess that's Scripture, isn't it? In another place it says... uh, uh, Right on my dad's desk, which when I was little was at eye level, and it was just right outside of my bedroom, uh, was a little plaque that said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I could go on. There was another plaque. Somebody made it vacation Bible school, probably one of my siblings, that, that said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest, at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation, which freaked me out. Uh, but it was there on the wall, and just by fact that it was there, I memorized it. My sister, my older sister, is an artist, and when she was in college, she created this batik wall hanging with Psalm 139, 17, and 18. It was there at the top of our stairs, above you know, above the stairway, and it said, How precious it is, Lord, to realize that you're thinking about me constantly. Can't even count how many times a day your thoughts turn toward me, and when I awaken in the morning, you are still with me. And I memorized it simply because it was on the wall. What we put on the walls of our homes, what we write on the doorposts of our house and on our gates, makes a difference. So the picture that's provided for us as Christian parents here in Deuteronomy 6 is is one of parents actively and intentionally creating an optimal teaching and learning environment in the home, within the family, that exposes children regularly and frequently to God's Word, that engages them in conversation and response to God's Word, that, that cultivates within them over time a deep personal faith in the living God that they encounter in the Word. Is there a change when we come to the New Testament? Nope. Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, a Christian father is to assume responsibility for leading his children in an act of personal faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's protege, Timothy's uh, father, was apparently not a Christian, but Both his mother and his grandmother were. And so they assumed that responsibility. And in his second letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well.
Then Paul added, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, the spiritual nurture of his mother and of his grandmother equipped Timothy with everything that he needed to make a personal choice to put his faith in Jesus and to receive salvation. Parents, this is our greatest task. And the most important thing we can do to prepare our children for opposition and even persecution for the name of Jesus. Third, the Christian family as a resistance cell will provide the matrix for moral development. Moral development. What does that mean? It means that as parents, we need to own the goal of assisting our children to be able to discern truth from falsehood and also to develop a keen sense of discernment regarding what is right and what is wrong. And in a world where those things are quite blurred, how do we do that? Well, for generations in America, both classrooms and courtrooms prominently displayed the Ten Commandments, which provide a bedrock moral code for God's people and provided even the foundation on which our United States Constitution was written. It's no wonder that John Adams said that because we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. No wonder our Constitution is under assault today. And perhaps one of those documents, then, that should be written on the doorpost of our house and on our gates is the Ten Commandments themselves. That would be a good start, would it not? Leading our children to come to terms early in life that in the words of the first commandment, the Lord is God and we should have no other gods before him will help them to put the rest of life into perspective. And once having digested the Ten Commandments, the, the rest of the moral instruction of the Bible begins to make sense. Sometimes when we're talking to people about biblical morality, they, they just look at us funny because they don't have any context, uh, no touch point. But it's as if each of the commandments is like a a hook on which all of the other biblical teaching on morality hangs. Um, So start there. Help your children to memorize them early in life. Have lots of discussions about what they mean. Later you can refer back to them as you encounter other moral instruction in both the Old and New Testaments and, and as they encounter moral conflicts. I mentioned Václav Benda earlier, but he and his wife Camilla made a point of teaching or reading rather classical moral literature to their children to stimulate their moral imaginations. The Lord of the Rings, which is a huge book, was a staple, and Camilla read it to them all the way through no less than six times. When asked why he thought she had chosen Tolkien, their their son Philip Benda answered, because we knew Mordor was real. 
We felt that their story, that of the hobbits and others resisting the evil Sauron, was our story too. And when you know the book, you see that you first need to fight the evil empire, but that's not the end of the war. Afterward, you have to solve the problems at home within the Shire. Great statement. So be selective. Choose books like Pilgrim's Progress or The Chronicles of Narnia or Bill Bennett's really excellent book, The Book of Virtues. Choose literature and media founded on biblical truth that stimulates your kids' moral imaginations and then have lots and lots of conversations about what they're reading and seeing. Fourth, the Christian family as a, resist, as a resistance cell must become a community of remembrance. Chuck Swindoll wrote, Each day of our lives, we make deposits in the memory banks of our children. I love Chuck, Chuck Swindoll. He's, he's full of pithy quotes on just about every topic. See, one of the questions every Christian parent who wants to raise children who persevere in following Jesus for a lifetime needs to ask is what those deposits ought to be. And, of course, there ought to be deposits that help a child understand the history of their very own family. Where did their ancestors come from? What were their lives all about? Who, who were some of the unusual and outstanding characters in the family tree? What kinds of fruits and nuts grew in that tree? Um, there ought to be deposits to teach a child about biblical history. We take for granted that we'll always have access to Bibles. But the God of the Bible is the God who reveals himself within human history. And in fact, most of the names of God, the names for God that we encounter in the Old Testament in particular, have to do with his character and his actions in history on behalf of his people So teach your children the stories of the Bible. Teach them about the history of the church, about those who struggled and those who gave their lives for the advance of the gospel. There ought to be deposits that teach our children accurate world history and national history. We live in a time when history is far too often revised and rewritten to fulfill a particular political or social narrative. I always think of Max Dupree, who wrote that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. If our children have to depend on newly written, revised, rewritten history for their sense of what is true and real in this world, they will be at a distinct disadvantage. Give your children the gift of true history. You may need to buy up as many older history books as you can find. Communist regimes regimes have often forbidden, always rather forbidden people to talk about history in ways that were unapproved by the government. Hannah Arendt observed that a person cut off from history is a person who is almost powerless against power. Interesting observation. One of the signs of impending totalitarianism in our country is that this is also one of the tactics of progressives in today's schools and universities. Uh, A Hungarian teacher in Budapest, Hungary, said um, of progressives today, I think they really believe that if they erase all memory of the past and turn everyone into newborn babies, then they can write whatever they want on that blank slate. If you think about it, it's not so easy to manipulate people who know who they are 
rooted in tradition. Parents, our families must become communities of memory. Finally, the Christian family as a resistance cell will view itself as a subset of the church, participating in its life and mission. Why do I say that the family should think of itself as a subset of the church? Why not members or partners? And, and there's nothing wrong with thinking about being members or partners of the church. I think that's an excellent choice to make. But by using the word subset, what I want to suggest to you is that the Christian family ought to think of itself as the church in miniature. And the church ought to think of itself as a family of families. We've already talked about the Christian family as a haven in a heartless world, a center for spiritual formation, the matrix for moral development, a community of memory. We've talked about the importance of parents as spiritual leaders, especially fathers, when that's possible. So why not think of the Christian home and the family as a little church? Where there is genuine worship of God where there is a shared faith in and obedience to Jesus Christ, where there is spiritual leadership and nurture, where there is biblical instruction, where the Holy Spirit takes up residence, where practical servanthood and intentional mission are happening, there is the church. There is the church. But the family will only understand and experience its life as a subset of the church if it is also actively participating in the life of the local church and extending its mission in the community and the world. Mark's gospel records an occasion when, thinking that he had lost his mind, Jesus' mother, Mary, and Jesus' siblings came to take him home. I don't know if they had a a straitjacket, or a padded wagon, but they came to take him home. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is one of the ways that Jesus early in his ministry began to define what the church would be. A family of Christ followers fully engaged in doing the will of God as he has revealed it to us in his word. And to that, we will turn next week as we conclude this series. I want to remind you that in three weeks, on April 11th, we will begin a new series, The Apostles' Creed, Ancient Future Faith. I hope that you'll sign up today to participate in a special small group for the series, that you'll invite someone to participate with you, and I hope that some of you might volunteer to lead a new group which is really just facilitating a discussion using material that will be prepared for you. Those groups can meet in person. They can meet online uh, through Zoom or GoToMeeting or some other uh, platform. But I hope you'll plan to participate in a group or leading a group, and I hope you'll be here for each of those 
messages. Before I conclude today, however, I want to take a moment and ask an important question. I want to ask whether there are parents and grandparents and prospective parents here today who will, by just standing where you are, say publicly that you are willing to accept the challenge and to lead your family to be a cell of Christian resistance against the secularizing influences of this present age, who are willing to say that you'll do everything in your power as God enables you to raise your children and grandchildren to know Christ and to persevere in faith and obedience in the face of opposition. It will take everything you've got and more, that by God's grace, you will do it. If you'll make that declaration today, will you please stand where you are? And I'd like to pray for you. Father, you see us standing here, and you know the thoughts and intents of our hearts. But by standing, these men and women have said that they're available to you, that they're committed to raising Christian kids in a Christian home that will enable them, regardless of what comes down the road, to stand strong, to stand stable in their faith, and to live lives of love and obedience and faith in you. So, Lord, would you meet us at that point of intent and that point of desire because we acknowledge that uh, we are weak and uh, it's a daunting task. But Lord, you've called called us to it and because of that, we know that you will not fail to equip us to do everything you've called us to do, to be everything you've called us to be in our marriages, in our families, in our homes. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.